Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I am a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We have come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. In this podcast, we're discussing The Shawl by Louise Erdrich, a short story which was first published in The New Yorker in 2001 and is also collected in The Red Convertible, the selected and new stories of Louise Erdrich. 1978 to 2008, Harper Perennial. So this brilliant story is one I discovered through you, Livy, and thank you for such a wonderful gift. Do you want to share why you selected it? Well, this is possibly my favourite short story ever. I read it again. It made my hair stand on end again, and it made me cry again. There is this great Emily Dickinson quote about poetry. If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? So that's how I feel about this story. Why? Well, it exemplifies something that you put rather beautifully once about how the experience of reading a short story can be like going through a small door but then finding yourself in a vast space like a cathedral and the use of gaps and omissions in this story which is so integral to the short story form are more significant here than in any other short story I've read. The framing is immeasurably skillful and it also has the best closing line I've ever read anywhere. So how to describe it? Because the plot is important here, unlike some short stories, such as the Tessa Hadley one, Bad Dreams, or the Graham Mort, where the imagery and narrative shifts do so much of the work. But here the plot really counts, so it's difficult to talk about it without giving too much away. But it starts in the past with a Native American family in which the mother is in love with someone other than her husband. And something terrible happens as an indirect consequence of this, which has repercussions down the generations. Possibly the first question might be, who tells the story? Such a great question. Even just that first line of the story is so loaded with complexity. It situates us among the Anishinaabeg, and the narrator seems to claim some authority by further situating us on the road where they, the narrator, live. But then there's that perfect use of a passive, which is a fantastic example of intelligent disregard for storytelling rules, such as the one about favouring active voice. It is told, the narrator says. So from the start, the story doesn't belong to any one person. It's constructed and maintained by a community. Yes, that line is a much older construction grammatically like once upon a time although obviously this story is no fairy tale but it refers us to a kind of collective storytelling that you get for example in ancient Greece or among the Anglo-Saxons. Also I was interested to read that the name Anishinaabeg refers to a collection of related First Nation peoples so this story isn't even particular to one cultural group. That's really interesting. Listening to you talking now, I'm thinking about how the short story is often compared with the very first stories that people told. 
around a campfire. Yes. The beginnings of storytelling. I was reading this story as a total outsider to Anishinaabeg peoples. And your words made me also think of something in that loaded first line, the word among, because it relates to throng etymologically. And it seems to fan out in the mind into all sorts of possible positionings between the individual and the collective. For me, it made me feel sort of at the heart of a grouping, but also outlined my status as an outsider to that group. And to go back to your question about who's telling the story, I actually kind of gave up trying to figure out who was who and who was talking as the tangled narrative built up by all involved seemed to be the point. And the telling of the story seemed to highlight the way stories are necessarily collective. About three paragraphs in, there are two instances of what an editor might flag up as ambiguous pronouns. There's wrapped in her plaid robe and he suddenly understood that he would be left behind. And in context, her could be mother or daughter and he could be father or son. And the telling of the story is so multi-voiced, I can't help feeling this ambiguity is deliberate or at least wonderfully apt. Yes, and I think it refers us to a kind of sorrow that is at once personal and transpersonal, passed down through the generations and impossible to pinpoint its origins. And this seems to me to be one of the ways in which the story moves between the personal and the political. The story is divided into different sections with a gap in the narrative each time and on the page between each one. And the last short section begins, there was a time when the government moved everybody off the farthest reaches of the reservation. Note the construction, there was a time again. So the story is at one the same time, deeply personal to one family, belonging to a group within the First Nation people, to the nation itself. And it also relates the oppression by the American government of all First Nation peoples, multi-layered indeed. Yes. And it seems to go even beyond that, linking the actions of an individual with the consequences on a bigger scale, uh, the government, but also the whole ecosystem. The changing situation of the Anishinaabe brought to mind how some settlers were faithless with native peoples and the cost of this and the consequences still echoing in our time. And we hear how guns took the wolves' food for furs and hides to sell, pushing wolves to hunt humans. And though the narrator later notes that the avidity of the wolves related to need, not want I couldn't help thinking of that expression, man is wolf to man, and how the characters get caught in this dynamic. And the children come to see their father as being like a wolf, as something to be avoided, outsmarted and exploited. That is a great saying and very relevant to this story. And also in the story, that line about the wolves, that they had abandoned their old agreement between them and the first humans, made me think again about the mythical and its borders with the real, because it sounds mythical, but of course wolves were the first wild animals to be tamed, possibly 40,000 years ago, which takes us right back to prehistory and the origins of the human race. And yes, the children stop thinking about their father as a human being, one of those lines that has a breathtaking economy and speaks of a world of tragedy and abuse. Although in the end, of course, the father is most acutely and painfully a victim himself, as is his father, who turns his face to the wall in response to the unbearable loss of his children. It's one of the interesting ways in which the story subverts gender roles and expectations. Yes. I love that Anagwa's daughter and son are introduced with those startling one-word qualifiers, yearning and capable. 
the gender norms I'm most familiar with are inversed in that the girl is capable and the boy is yearning. And, and Urquhart's daughter takes on a great deal of her pupil's emotional labor and physical labor, and then is either sacrificed or self-sacrificing. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. I had a discussion about it with a writer friend, and the person I was speaking with pointed out that when guys do something sacrificial in Storyland, it's often in an active way, like taking a last stand, whereas girls tend to offer themselves up. I noticed that that was the word that occurred in the text. The girl realizes that she is the one on the wagon who has to be offered up. There's also also a form of blood sacrifice between the two males in the story, but this comes about through their fighting. And I wondered, without being able to come to any conclusion, about how the gender positioning relates to historical roles, both within the Anishinaabeg and outside, beyond. In my mind, the disappearance of the girl mirrored the chronic issue of unresolved disappearances of Native American women. And something that also struck me was how there were moments where gender seemed open to a projection. I first read the voice of the narrator of the second section as female, I think because of the shadow of the author in my imagination. I did too. Oh, interesting. Um, and then three paragraphs into that section, the narrator is revealed to be a guy. And I love both the ambivalence of this and the obligation to acknowledge my own projecting onto the text as reader. Within the context of this story, the ambivalence seemed to underpin the collective nature of storytelling and how stories connect all humans. Absolutely. And actually, I hadn't thought about that point about the young girl and sacrifice. And I think you raised some really interesting issues relating to gender and this story. I think there's much more to be said about that. But I was actually thinking about the mother who in many respects does not behave as we might expect. She is named unlike her husband or her lover or the son which I find interesting although her name means cloud referring us to the natural world and she's described as being like a cloud in her nature so the name designates her in a symbolic way. She's moody and sullen and in her depression over the man she loves she becomes like a grey sky. So is she real or mythical in a primitive sense like an from nature that nothing can be done about. It just is. In the first line, we're told that a woman loved a man other than her husband. And I think we're not told this in a judgmental way. Again, it just is. And the oldest stories tend to be like this. Things are the way they are and there is nothing to be done about. Certainly the men in this story can't do anything about the events that occur. The father, Anakwa's husband, at first turns his face to the wall, then later witnesses something so atrocious that all he can do is tell it over and over again in order to get rid of it. Although, of course, he can't get rid of it. Then the son can only run after the sledge as his mother leaves him behind and something breaks in him. So there's a lot about male pain in this story. Absolutely. And it's so intricately interwoven with the pain of the women and the other generations, rather like the fibres of the shawl that features so prominently. Great comparison. And the seeding of that recurrent motif is such a masterclass in itself. When the shawl is first referenced in the body of the story, it's a simple red and brown plate, but we already know to see it as more than that because we've been primed by the story's title. And whereas most of the prose, though poetic, is paired back, the reference is distinguished by that brief description and the colour red really pops out and marks the memory. And from there on then we see the shawl transform visually with each reference. It's torn in the aftermath of tragedy, then brown with red lines and flying in the heat of an attack, and then so old as to be barely recognisable, and then as something that must be purified by burning, and then at last flying again, but with flight transformed in meaning, as Anakwad's daughter's destruction has gone from being something imposed to a self-willed act. 
a powerful, creative self-sacrifice. So there's this journey from tragedy to catharsis, and the shawl marks milestones along the way, accumulating meaning with each reference. And it's such a powerful symbol anyway, a specific cultural signifier, but also universal, because humans everywhere use blankets and shawls to, to shelter and comfort themselves. I love the scene where the man holds the cloth to his wounded head as if to collect there his thoughts. And I couldn't help thinking also of horrible stories I've heard about infected blankets being used by certain early settlers to spread disease among native populations. Well, absolutely. And yes, I love that point about the specific and universal. It's one of the ways in which the story becomes epic in the sense of transpersonal, not just about humans in relation to one another, but in relation to nature and to time as well of course. How does time work in this story? And this maybe relates to your wonderful question about who is telling the story. I love that the story takes us from a narrated present to this seemingly far off storyland past as you put it and then yanks us out of there when the narrator lets on that they don't know the full story and can only offer best guesses and then there's an even stronger yank when the narrator lets on that this is no folk tale but a real story. And there's that wonderful scene that really loops the reader into the story. We see how storytelling was constructed by the narrator's forebear reading wolf tracks in the snow and applying his knowledge of that environment to reconstruct the wolf's movements, exactly how a reader works to bring meaning to a text by using inferencing and predicting. And there's a recurring technique too with prolepsis where the narrator tells us what will happen, which is used to take great leaps forward through time before the story goes back to a different past with a seemingly different teller or to the same past but transformed by new information. There's the drunk father who appears both as not yet wasted away by alcohol and the wasted future self is also sketched out by those very words. And there's this awareness of the great weight of a tragic legacy, terrible fatefulness. The grandfather sees what he has to see, the drunk father smells the way he has to smell. As you say things, they just are, but they are very tragic. The past is always making itself felt in the present and even in the future, but at the same time, through the ever-changing story, we keep seeing these connections between people and actions and words and keep seeing the potential for change. So in this respect, the, the story really highlights uh, the power of story itself. No. Absolutely. I believe the power of the ending is in part that the son or grandson in this story takes it on himself to rewrite this old, entrenched and very painful narrative as a means of healing his father, whom he has, let's not forget, beaten very badly. But even the beating seems to be part of the healing process in that the father is different afterwards. Then the son retells this story for him and rewrites the role of the young girl, giving it an entirely different significance. I think a lesser writer might have ended it with the man and his son burning the shawl as an act of resolution. But Erdrich takes it further and makes the whole story about the transformational power of narrative and about grace, if I can use such a religious term, because what is being transformed is the worst, most terrible human experience into an act of great symbolic beauty. And of course, this is one way in which at the end, the male speaker is granted an extraordinary power. The young girl has power, as he tells it, and she is representative of her nation, the old sort of an Ishinagbek. But he also has this tremendous power to change the narrative. So the two characters with the least power in the beginning of the story, two victims, are both transformed in the powerful retelling of this narrative, as is the nation itself. And that's what I mean by great 
there is certainly enough material here for a novel or several novels, and Erdrich does write novels, but how might this work as a novel? What would it lose? You know, I actually don't read novels, if I can help it. I tend to read them only occasionally as research for short stories. I'm reading the novels of a writer who wrote some short stories that I'm translating, for example. And I admit, I sometimes feel a bit at a loss when the short story discipline is compared to the dominant novel form. Because as a writer, I found film and poetry and stand-up comedy all more useful for short story craft lessons. And there's something about these forms that for me seems to translate very directly to short fiction, the way scenes work together in a film to build narrative, for example, or the way image and metaphor can be worked in a poem, or the way a stand-up comedian will position their persona sharing something true but also constructed, and carefully prime an audience to then deliver a line at exactly the right time, exactly the right way. All these sorts of things have taught me more about crafting short fiction than novels, and I share this for anybody short fiction writers out there for what help it may give them on their journeys. If watching stand-up comedy is more accessible to you than an MA or whatever, don't despair. You can get brilliant craft lessons there. Uh, if it worked for Amy Hempel, it can work mm-hmm. for you. Of course, this said one thing doesn't necessarily have to exclude another. And I know that you, Livy, have a marvellously broad literary background and extensive experience of novel form, among others. And I'm thinking that if this question is coming to you, it's surely because you have something to share that resonates with you and this story. So if I may, I'd be interested to pass this question back. How do you think this story might work as a novel? Well, thank you. I think it might lose the immense poetic power of those gaps. But also, as it stands, the story does have an epic power. And it has been said that the novel form is opposite to the epic by Bakhtin, for instance, um, in the Dialogic Imagination, where he wrote epic and novel towards a methodology for the study of the novel. He wrote that in essay in 1941. And Bakhtin sees the novel as engaging with the problems of contemporary society, reconceptualizing the individual in a complex way that interrogates their subjectivity. And he also sees it as a uniquely flexible form. The epic, however, according to Bakhtin, is situated in the distant past, irretrievable and idealized. Also, I think the human characters in the epic are representative of something larger than themselves, such as a heroic ideal or humankind in general. And they're engaged in large conflicts, good versus evil, mortality, nature, or some monster that is in itself representative of a destructive elemental force. But I'm now working on the idea that certain short stories negotiate between the novel form and the epic, and that this might be a way of conceptualising them. I think the points that Bakhtin makes about the novel also apply to the short story, but there are certain short stories that transcend the form in a way that somehow incorporates epic. The Sheila Armstrong one, The Red Market, that we did in an episode of our podcast, the Idza Luhumio, the Daniel Mason, possibly the Graham Moore to walk in the snow, Bad Dreams by Tessa Hadley in this one. So despite the shortness of the form, and many epics were originally long poems, not novel length, the story attains something much larger in scope than is denoted simply by plot. I think it's been said that the short story is closer to poetry than the novel, and I would add to that and say that certain short stories are closer to the epic poem than to the novel. 
This short story certainly has both poetic and epic features. Its short sections are like stanzas, its occasional use of archaic constructions, its naming technique, and above all, its supremely skillful use of the gap or aporia that moves us between generations, from the personal to the political, and back again from the ancient to the modern. It's a really exciting way of looking at short fiction, I think, to associate it with the epic, because it's traditionally associated with strong moments or moments of epiphany. So to see the short story in terms of the great sweep of history is, is very exciting. Well, this story is really impressive in its scope. I mean, I can only hope people go away and read it. It's staggeringly good. It's a tour de force. What a great French term that is. <laughs> I hope we've done the story some justice. Once again, thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast. And do keep your eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and from Sonia. À très bientôt.